today you step into my mythology time machine and we motor back to the age of heroes. Welcome on board and moments we arrive in ancient Athens. Ha, we're there. Catching our breath, we stand in Greece's most acclaimed city. We look like everyone around us. The year is 400 BC, about 2400 years ago. We're surrounded by men and women all quite preoccupied. But why are we here? For centuries, citizens in Athens have attended a secretive festival called the Eleusinian Mysteries. It's September near the autumnal equinox. We join almost a thousand Athenians. A road called the Sacred Way winds from the center of Athens to a small city of Eleusis, roughly 14 miles to the west. It's a long day's walk and we've been told we must fast throughout, but that doesn't faze us. This initiation is the most important thing in the world. No Athenian who believes in the gods risks dying before attending this event, and no one around us is not a believer. Every Greek knows that once you have died, Hades chooses your final resting place. He shepherds those who've been initiated in Eleusis toward green meadows. He herds those who haven't in the dimly lit, burnt fields. So we gather at dawn with other initiates and we call ourselves mystae, which in Greek means mystics. Suddenly all goes quiet. A priest hits a large gong. Its vibrations pierce us to the bone. He lifts a banner honored our images of wheat, corn, and barley. Other priests light ceremonial torches and all of us begin to walk to the west toward Eleusis. Your heart beats rapidly, but you repress your excitement. You can see in the faces of those around us that this journey is solemn and sacred. Someone in the crowd cries out, We'll be saved before the week ends. A boy echoes, Yes, yes, to Eleusis. A woman beside you begins to cry. You look at her and recognize tears of joy. Welcome to episode 15 of Garner's Greek Mythology. I'm your host, mythologist, and best-selling author, Patrick Garner. You can read more about my novels and about this podcast at patrickgarnerbooks.com. In my book, Homo Divinitus, the great goddess recreates these mysteries in the modern world. As always, this podcast will focus on one thing, Greek gods, of course. Here, the ancient gods are not considered imaginary. Hardly. Instead, they, like you, are here now. The Eleusinian Mysteries Why are they called mysteries? One reason is that no one was allowed to speak about them. Anyone who revealed the details faced either exile or death. Consequently, we only know broad themes and little else. 
The ceremony was conducted in Eleusis for well over a thousand years. Hundreds of thousands of Greeks attended the rites. To our knowledge, only two men violated their vows of silence. One was Diagoras of Melos, who was a poet, a sophist, and an infamous atheist. In 415 BC, he began to mock the gods and worse, to mock the mysteries. He even persuaded some Athenians not to attend. That was the last straw. Athens passed a decree against Diagoras. He was wanted dead or alive. He fled and was never seen again. The only other man known to be as foolish was Alcibiades. You'll remember him from the episode on Hermes. Alcibiades was a charismatic Athenian general and a friend of Socrates. After a drinking party the night before he was to lead his men to fight in Sicily, he ran through the streets of Athens destroying hundreds of herms. These herms were highly sacred to Athenians and it was said that he had also mocked the mysteries. Although he was allowed to command the fleet that sailed at dawn, within days he was called back to Athens and charged with impiety. Fearing for his life, he, like Diagoras, escaped. But unlike Diagoras, who simply disappeared, Alcibiades reappeared as a Spartan to fight against the Athenians. As you can see from the example of these two men, one simply did not question the sacredness and the significance of the Eleusinian mysteries. These mysteries were initiated by the Olympic goddess Demeter. At first they were a celebration for the return of her daughter Persephone. Then they became a passport to a better afterlife. Demeter's gift of thanks became one of the grandest from the gods to mortals. In the episode about Hades, we learned that the lord of the underworld kidnapped Persephone. She was beautiful and was courted by all the gods, but Hades knew she would never willingly agree to live with him below the earth. So one bright afternoon as she gathered flowers in a field, he swept her into his chariot, his four black horses doubling their speed as she tried to escape. She screamed repeatedly, but to no avail. When Demeter discovered her missing, she became increasingly despondent. After a year of searching, Demeter discovered the truth. Persephone was being held in Hades' vast palace. In desperation, Demeter persuaded the goddess Hecate, who could easily slip between worlds, to help. Hecate quietly entered the underworld and found that Persephone had been taken and was Hades' wife. Hecate persuaded Hades to release the girl, mentioning quietly that Zeus would be unhappy if they couldn't reach a compromise. Hades agreed, but he wasn't playing it straight, and he tricked his wife. Persephone was unaware that anyone who eats while underground can never escape the dark realm completely. He gave her a pomegranate seed, saying, Eat this if you get 
hungry. Halfway out of the underworld, she ate it and became forever bound to Hades. Demeter was infuriated, threatening Hades with violence. And eventually Zeus intervened and brokered a deal. The compromise stipulated that Persephone would spend eight months of every year above ground, but must return to Hades for the other four. During those four months while she lives with Hades, the Earth experiences winter. When she returns to Earth, spring arrives. But now we return to Athens, where the priest leads us over a narrow bridge called the Kephisos. To our shock, there are boys and men wearing masks who mock us as we pass. Behind them are dozens of other people who seem to be egging them on. The insults are biting, but we continue. We hear later that this verbal abuse is a strange tradition, not unlike a fraternity or a sorority hazing. Before another hour has passed, many of the women have begun to sing. They sing of fertility and bountiful crops, renewal and rebirth. After four or five verses, everyone raises their voices even louder, chanting, Iakos! Iakos! The procession stops at noon. Priests begin to work their way through the crowd. Helpers tie red and white ribbons to the right wrist and left ankle of each of us. Over an hour passes before they finish. The procession begins to move again. By late afternoon, we've passed the Bay of Eleusis, also known as the Bay of Shipwrecks. A brackish smell of salt and drying seaweed blows off the water. Finally, ahead of us appears the temple complex, the sanctuary of Demeter. Night has almost fallen and firebrands burn everywhere. Women wearing yellow gowns come out of the complex. They stop at the carriage, reverently lifting the wooden statue and carrying it aloft into a massive building. The building is the Telesterion, or the Hall of Initiates, and it's not just any building. It's the largest in all of Greece and designed by the Parthenon's architect. We're led into it, into the building, through its wide doors and down its polished steps. We enter a vast lower room illuminated by flickering torches. As soon as everyone is settled, attendants appear carrying vats of a dark, pungent drink. Someone standing at your elbow whispers, It's Kaikion. The drink is fermented and made from mashed barley. Some say that it's hallucinogenic. We accept wide cups and drink hesitantly. The liquid is cloying and unpleasant. You wink at me and say, (laughs) I don't feel anything, do you? But before I can answer, the room begins to sway, and everyone is suddenly shouting and pushing. More kaikianas thrust into our hands. Lovely young attendants are laughing and encouraging us with, Drink up! Drink up! Lights are extinguished. There are screams and cries. 
You begin to fear for your life. You pass out and wake up, black out and wake up. Hours pass. In the dark, someone grabs your legs and you shake them off. At another moment, you're wrestled to the ground and then released. It's terrifying. You can see nothing. Your attackers are silent, persistent, and through it all, the room is alternately freezing or fiercely hot. But in time, the craziness seems to peak. Torches are relit one by one, and the vast room slowly quiets. A priest, wearing a mask of Demeter, mounts a podium and shouts, Sleep if, if, if you can. We're exhausted and unroll the blankets we've carried all day. Everyone is doing the same, but through the night, strange sounds continue. We wake constantly to machines grating, or screams or flutes rasping, tuneless songs, the whinnying of horses, iron bars hitting cobbles. Then another masked priest mounts the podium and beats a gong over and over. Let's step away from the chaos of the chambers for a moment. What's, what's happening and why? Like Pantheus, an early Christian writer said, in the mysteries of Demeter, all night long with tortures kindled, they seek Persephone. So the tormented night in the Hall of Initiates represents the agony that Persephone's mother Demeter experienced during the year she searched for her daughter. But Lactanius is not believed to have ever attended the mysteries. His description is likely hearsay. On the other hand, Plutarch, a Greek priest based in Delphi, may well have experienced the mysteries directly. He's one of our few credible sources. He wrote, At the end of the initiations, a great flame rose into the air above the city of Eleusis. Sounds and voices were heard through all the area as far as the sea. A mist seemed to form and rise from the place whence the sounds came, and many saw apparitions. Enough of ancient sources. Now we return in person to the Telesterian. Remember, we're mystics, and we crouch in the dark underground. We're intended to believe we've died and descended to the underworld. We're Persephone, the, the terrible sounds we hear are the sounds of the dead. The shimmer of floating around us are the dead. All of these apparitions are the lost, who failed to be purified and elusive while they lived. Where's our beloved Persephone? Many of those around us call her their lost girl. Will we, like Hecate, succeed in finding her? We've been promised an unspeakable light. We await being reborn like Persephone when she rises up from the earth. In the darkness of the underground chambers, in the center of it all, a light suddenly illuminates a man and a woman. They're clearly visible. As our eyes adjust, we're stunned to see that the two have set aside their robes and 
joined. A dozen attendants, all women, stand around the platform. Each holds staves of wheat and barley and corn. After minutes, the two cry out in joy. Then the underground chamber again descends into darkness. No one dares speak. The silence becomes unbearable. The light again returns. The man and the woman and all the attendants of they've disappeared. Instead, a child sits on a golden pillow. Almost everyone watching shouts, Plotus! Plotus! Which is the name of Persephone and Hades' offspring. The child holds a cornucopia, a horn of plenty. Grapes spill out from his wide opening. On a throne beside the baby sits a beautiful goddess. We're certain it's Persephone herself. We look around. Everyone is either crying or, or laughing. Women are shouting, The lost girl is back. That's all the information we have about what went on. But still, we know the essence of the mysteries. They mirrored the promise of so many religions. We know the themes. Death and rebirth. Loss and recovery. Fertility and a horn of plenty. Persephone represents descent into the underground. Hades has snatched her unexpectedly. Her death is untimely. Through a miracle, through divine intervention, that of Hecate and Zeus, she's reborn. The miracle promises that you too can become immortal. The crops that she blackened in her grief will grow again. Fertility is assured. Life continues. And life for those who attend the mysteries will go on even after death. There's another element to the story, a god I haven't revealed, who played a key role in Ulysses. You may have already guessed. We spoke about him at length in the last episode. Yes, it's Dionysus. During the mysteries, it was Dionysus who infused the barley drink, Kaikion, with its hallucinogenic qualities. In the same way that Dionysus created the frenzy among the women who joined him on his raves, he stirred terror and joy among the mystics. He was the eternal dancer, and he set the stage for the final act. He prepared the ground, the way, creating the visions and the apparitions seen by all. Dionysus plays a similar role in my book Homo Divinitus. In it, in the contemporary world, he helps the great goddess recreate these same mysteries. Demeter's gifts of revelation and salvation lasted well over a thousand years. Yet in 393 AD, the Roman Emperor Theodosius, a Christian convert, ended the ancient ways. Even the Olympic Games disappeared. 
You may remember that these were so important to the Greeks that wars were suspended so the games could go on. Theodosius simultaneously ordered the destruction of thousands of sacred groves, temples, and places of worship. In 395, the temple at Eleusis was decommissioned. The doors closed, the treasures stripped from the walls, and the priests sent packing. Then a mere year later, Eleusis was overrun by the Visigoths, a Germanic tribe that tore down the entire complex, building by building. The end had come. The mysteries were never again celebrated, and their deepest secrets were forever lost. In our next episode, we meet the goddess Circe, a daughter of Helios and Hecate. She's the beauty who's depicted on the artwork I use for this podcast. But why Circe? She entertained the Greek warrior Odysseus as he returned home from Troy, and there are those who claim she was the first witch. Be sure to visit patrickgarnerbooks.com or find me on Amazon. My three novels are set in today's world and feature Greek gods who meddle and maneuver as they always have.